Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Quit podcast. Today you're going to hear an episode that was recorded almost a full year ago on February 18th, 2020. Before COVID hit, we were planning as High Point Church to do another conference on sexuality as a follow-up to our 2019 Sexuality Everywhere conference. Part of that conference was a teenage track, and in order to gather information about what was actually helpful for teenagers to learn about, we met up with a group of college students to ask them questions about the things they did and didn't know about sex and what they would have loved to have known coming into college. So this discussion between myself, John Sikotowski, Nicole Kyle, and Nick Gibson, this discussion that we had is just a follow-up to that meeting and the kinds of things that came up when we were talking to those college students. Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Quit podcast. My name is Nicole Kyle. I am on the staff team at High Point Church. I'm the worship director and I coordinate women's ministry. I've got John Sikotowski with me. Hey. And Nick Gibson. Hey guys. We are here to talk about sexuality today. The first thing that we wanted to talk a little bit about was um, that most of the college students had the same had a very similar experience, which was that they were taught that in, in one way or another, they were taught that sex is bad, but not really what, and right. And that's it. Like not really what sex is, what counts as bad sex and not really much more than that. And so, and they were all wrestling with like, now what am I supposed to do if I get married someday? And so before we jump in a little bit more, I thought it might be helpful for us to share like what, our experiences were in mm-hmm. adolescence and growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also uh, people wouldn't know this, but when we got together with the college students, there were like 30 of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe so we, more. Yeah, it was a lot of them. And then we broke into gr- groups by gender. So you met with yeah. some girls, you yeah. met with some guys, I met with some different guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we actually could maybe even report on what we heard in those groups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've, we broke into four groups total and we have some notes. Who was the other woman? Christina. Christina. Um, Christina oh, Flaherty. Christine, yeah. who, Christina Flaherty. Sometimes yes. dates you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So right. Um, I'll just share briefly what my experience was. I, I grew up, I was a Christian from a young age. I was the fourth of uh, four children. And one day I came home. I don't remember how old I was, but I came home and there was just a book on my bed about sexuality and sex. And I was like, what's this book? And I like flipped open the first page and I was like, ah, I'm freaked out and like <laughs> threw it on the bottom shelf of my bookshelf and never looked at it again. <laughs> never talked about anything with my parents and, and they're wonderful people. And I, yeah. Years they later, are. I asked my mom, I was like, why did you, like, why did I never have a sex talk from you? And she goes, well, I just figured you like heard your siblings talking about it and making like uh, profane, like um, hand motions at the dinner table. <laughs> and I thought you just would kind of pick it up. And I was like, no, I didn't. you're the youngest of four. Yeah. Right. And they then figure she, they've done a couple yeah. of sex talks. That should be plenty. Right. And then she's like, well, do you want to talk now? And I said, no. <laughs> And so, um, so when I got to high school and I didn't have very many, I was in a small town. I didn't have very many Christian friends. And so I just was like, if I had questions, I asked my non-Christian friends because I was like, well, they're the ones having sex. So maybe they they must know something. They must know something. I think that that's pretty common for teenagers Yeah, is that parents say nothing. They're, they're a little grossed out by the idea that their parents might even be having sex. And then they they hear friends talking about it and it's very easy to gravitate towards the ones that talk about it the most. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if they're telling lies, teenagers often don't know who's lying and who's not because they don't know enough about sex to know if people are telling lies. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, 
And so I think that, I think that's normal. Yeah. Right? And I think that it's catastrophic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, you said you had a similar experience too. Yeah. My experience growing up was, was very similar to yours. So we had, I was in public school, so we did have the classes. So one in fifth grade, one in seventh or eighth grade health classes. Mm-hmm. So, um, which in fifth grade was just terribly embarrassing and the source yeah. of a lot of uncomfortable fifth grade jokes. And mostly just where they give you deodorant. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like we, we had a breakout with, we did do a gendered breakout at the end of that. And right. It was, it was just very strange. There wasn't a whole lot of learning besides like anatomy is a thing and it's different between boys and girls. And that's about it. Yep. Um, and that was pretty similar to in eighth grade when we did our uh, later health class in that too. We, t- we talked a little bit about like abstinence is generally a good idea. If you're going to have sex, use condoms. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for my parents, it was right. It just wasn't something that was really was really talked about. I was like Nick was saying, I was grossed out by the idea that my parents might be having might be having sex. <laughs> um, so I was not prone to want to bring it up. Um, they didn't bring it up, and so unfortunately, what happened with me is my teacher ended up being Google for a lot of this stuff. Where yeah. I would like hear kids at school make a comment about something. And I didn't want to ask them because I didn't want to look stupid. Oh, totally. So I'd go home and Google it, yeah. which which doesn't lead you into good places generally. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, Nick, I, I don't know if you can speak to this, but is there like, as you have pastored and as you've observed culture and, and thought through history specifically related to the sexual revolution, like, do you think there's a reason why this has been the case for so many people for such a long time that like parents don't talk about this or don't want to talk about it or like, is there something related to that or is it just human nature in your observation? Yeah. I mean, there's always lots of dynamics, right? Like, you know, one of my pet peeves is one thing is I'm right that, that, well, this is the reason, you know? Um, I mean, obviously there, there humans have a sense of modesty about sex, Mm -hmm. even when cultures try to eradicate it and it, there is a sense of taboo embarrassment. Right. And I think that that's actually fairly healthy feeling it's one of the reasons that keeps us from being loud mouths about sex around everybody else and to not respect the innocence of people around us and so mm-hmm. I, I don't actually think it's a bad thing but then there are times where there are good taboos or feeling of restraint on things that you have to overcome right like right um, some of them are just simple like when you should apologize to somebody and you don't really want to right mm-hmm. there's something holding you there's, a, there's something prohibiting you and you have to fight through it right and I think when it's time to talk to your kids about sex, you're going to have that taboo feeling because you want to respect their innocence. You don't want to talk about sex you know, mm-hmm. and you, and you know that, and nobody likes being rejected. And most parents feel like they're going to get rejected by their kids when mm-hmm. they talk about sex. And part of this too, it has to do with whether or not you're having conversations with your kids about reality mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So that sex is just another reality mm-hmm. that you talk about. It also has to do with whether or not you've been having conversations with your kids just about their bodies Sure. And also about their relationships. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're having conversations with your kids about their bodies, just as they're developing, and you're having conversations with your kids about their relationships, well, sex is something that's happening with your bodies and is you always relational by nature. And so at some point, those two lines kind of start to intersect and you're like, okay, so there's a something related to your body and relationships that we need to talk about and you can start to get yeah. into that, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Also remember that the, what we call the nuclear family, the idea that in one household lives a man and a woman and their children. And that that's a family is a relatively new concept. It's, 
it's quite a new concept. It's it's about a hundred years old or so. Before that, it was much more likely that you're going to be in close proximity to aunts and uncles, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe you'd have a grandmother or grandparent living in your household. And so there are a lot of kids over the course of the history of the world who learned from, about sex from older cousins, who learned about sex from. Um, aunts and uncles yeah and now learning it from older cousins is not always great right <laughs> it's I a little like the, learning from your siblings my cut my aunts got very mad at me when i taught their children about sex when i didn't know what it was myself right but yeah you, you i was had, the perpetrator i had heard right. some things <laughs> right. and uh but but yeah. having like aunts and uncles who are responsible fairly responsible people and who i mean it comes down to who your aunts and uncles are right, right. you know um but right. if you if you have people who are relatively responsible but aren't your dad and aren't your mom, sometimes people feel more comfortable talking with them. Yeah. Also, if you have a healthy church environment, there is the possibility of having other male friendships or, or friendships with people of your same gender yep. who are separated from you enough that you feel like you can talk to them. Mm-hmm. And so let's come back to some of that sort of stuff on like right. how, yeah. But, but I do think, I do think the change of the family has affected that. I also think that um, women in particular are just way more unprotected mm-hmm. than they've ever been in the history of the world in almost every culture that's ever happened. And so one of the ways cultures kept people from having sexual mishaps was actually not educating people about sex, but to keep track of the women (laughs) and Mm -hmm. keep them from getting in situations where they would be having illicit sex. And so they were taught a little bit, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. The main thing women knew were they didn't go like my mom, who's she's 82 now, right? When she grew up in sort of a small village in Italy, she couldn't go anywhere without a male relative with her. Now, I mean, she could play with girlfriends, but if she's going to go anywhere where there could be boys, she couldn't go down to the to the river mm-hmm. by herself when she was going to wanted to go to a wedding when her dad was out of town. She had to go with an uncle. Mm-hmm. When, once they got to the wedding, the uncle was there. She could do whatever she wanted. She sure. could go play, dance with. She could dance with the boys and everything. But her uncle was there to watch over her, make mm-hmm. sure she didn't leave with anybody or something right. like that. And that was that's been pretty traditional for several thousand years. It's only very recently. In fact, there have been some some people who've written on how the, actually the invention of the, the car fundamentally changed sexuality. Interesting. In mm-hmm. very dramatic ways because sure. you can actually have sex right. in those things. Right. And so once there were cars and then once people started driving them, then once young people started driving right. them, then the capacity for rendezvous and right. living life away from your mm-hmm. immediate household, getting away from the close proximity of your neighborhood where everybody was watching you, mm-hmm. all that changed. Right. And that then all of a sudden there was all this accountability that existed for literally thousands of years just mm-hmm. evaporated. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking, like, I wonder what it was about the car and not like the covered wagon. But I suppose it's just a little bit more difficult. You can go a lot farther, <laughs> faster. Right. Car. I think that's yeah. the main difference. Yeah. Farther, I mean, faster, by yourself. Quietly. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Without I mean, there's, there's so many things like just like yeah. you have to water horses about every six to eight hours. Yeah. So you, there's certain things you right. have to do. Yeah. And, um, and that's not to say that I'm sure there were a lot of children ill-conceived right. in the back of wagons. I mean, that's not <laughs> yeah. naive, right? But, but there was something different about the about the car, especially mm-hmm. once you got to like the 1950s and you got like full engines, more reliable cars. Mm-hmm. You're not talking about Model Ts anymore, that kind of thing. You, you were right. getting like the sort of like the car teenagers began to get excited about. And then you started getting the 50s and the 60s a lot more yeah. of that sexual action, but right. not anywhere close to the promiscuity we see today. Right. I mean, that, part of it had to do with a changing philosophy of sex. Yeah. yeah. That it, you, and like one of the things that's interesting is that some of the, a lot of the college students that we talked to that are, were from Christian families in their families, they were still told not to have sex. And like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people now for whom that's just not a, like what, like one of the things that I found in my group was they were told one of two things. One is don't have sex or two, don't get anybody pregnant or get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And like, that was my, the, the 
my wife's sex talk was don't get pregnant. Hmm. Yeah. And that it was a very insufficient, obviously sex talk is it, that's, that's almost as insufficient. What's probably more insufficient than don't have sex, but it's very insufficient because well, there's a lot, obviously lots of reasons for that. But, but yeah. we, I saw that from the students. The students were like, some of them were like, yeah, I was told not to have sex. Mm-hmm. Some of them were, just, were told, got the message from that that sex was bad or were told that sex was bad and that some of them were told just to not do anything that could create the ill effects of using sex wrongly like getting somebody pregnant or getting mm-hmm. STD or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, some of the things that I was, um, that my group was talking about too were, right, that changing culture of, especially um, when they were talking about their experiences in health classes, which this wasn't really, I wouldn't say this was my experience when I was in going through health classes in fifth grade and then later in late middle school, but they felt um, this sense almost that it felt promoted like that Mm -hmm. having sex was like, it's fine. It's good. It's great. Like this whole kind of removing the quote unquote, like sex shaming culture. Um, And then, but then they were told those things, right? Don't get somebody pregnant. Um, like have safe sex so that you don't contract some sort of STD. But, but right. The culture seems to have changed around even, even from when I was in middle school to the kids who we were talking to who are, you know, six to eight years younger than me. Um, the amount of difference between the culture when they were being taught in public school was, was surprising to me. That it was more permissive. It was like, it was yeah. like, go experiment with these things. Right. And just in, and, and just the amount of time that had passed to, yeah. to those things. And like, right. Some, some of them are talking about, um, like encouragements towards masturbation and things like that. It was just like, uh-huh. those were not things that I got. And no taboo around pornography. Right. Uh, they didn't say anything specifically about that, but okay. yeah, that didn't yeah, come sure. up very much in ours either, but they did there. It, it was interesting. Some of them were very much a, like sex is bad. That, just that side of it. Some were like mm-hmm. masturbation is empowering for women. There was mm-hmm. one girl whose mom was, I think like a, a not a doula, but maybe a midwife, but something. And she invited all of her, her daughter and all of her friends to come over to her house after gra- when they were about to graduate their senior year. And they could just write down any question they had about sexuality. And I don't think she was um, trying to encourage sex, but I, she was just trying to answer their questions mm-hmm. as a, parent um and so it was this it does there do seem to be there these different experiences of like we're gonna we're gonna uncover everything Mm -hmm. and maybe push you towards it or we're not Mm -hmm. gonna say anything at all which i think something that would be interesting to talk about are the different effects that has for someone who's pursuing growing in both of those are extremely bad approaches yeah i think i want to be very clear about that as a pastor both the i mean i say you sometimes you'll hear me say a lot being just a liberal or a conservative in your temperament or your behavior is n- is not okay because you have to discern in each case whether or not there is something to conserve or there's a liberality that needs to be extended and mm-hmm. and oftentimes there is there is some tension between the two right and so in so you can't if you want to just say well let's just be as liberal as possible and just like experiment i'll just tell you everything and there's no there's no creation of taboos there's no respecting of the innocence of people there's no clear delineation of consequences mm-hmm. like there's like for example the conservatives are always saying there's no such thing as safe sex right that's true mm-hmm. right like as a person who has conceived a child whilst using birth control right <laughs> I, I, i'm just going to yeah. tell you that that's not true mm-hmm. okay there, there are also all kinds of dynamics that are one step deeper than the dynamics people explain so like if you give teenagers condoms and they have sex with them they don't like that sex Right, sex with condoms, at least for men, is very unsatisfying. 
in terms of feeling and so on. And it also, there's a psychological idea that there's like something still between us. There's a barrier. And like, so the, in so having sex with the condom increases the felt desire for increased intimacy. The only way to achieve that in a bodily way is to remove the barrier device Mm -hmm. the next time you have sex, which tends to happen. Mm -hmm. And so like, you, you don't explain that in health class. Nobody really understands that, right? right? Right. Plus, you also have issues of people, young women, for example, who like don't feel like their life is meaningful, and they don't feel like their life is going to become meaningful, and, but they know having a, a human being makes your life more meaningful. Hmm. And so, there. I mean, there's all kinds of things, and I don't think that's stupid either. I think that there are a lot of people's lives who have been so um, demoralized and in some ways oppressed that for a poor young woman to say, the most meaningful thing I can do is to get pregnant and have a child is actually reasonable. Hmm. That really is the most reasonable and meaningful thing she can do is create another image bearing human being. She feels that in her guts and in her soul. And so being like, well, you know, have sex and that'll feel meaningful. Well, it, it's not as meaningful as making a human, mm-hmm. right? And so there's all kinds of these interdynamics of how things are related. They just aren't as simple as, look, sex is great, experiment, do your thing, or sex is bad, it's evil, stay away from it. It's it's the, I don't, you know, like boys are, there's a devil inside all of them and there's right. some truth to that, but yeah. you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas like, I feel like with my daughters, my older daughters especially, who obviously I've talked the most about sex too. So I've talked, I've had sex talks with the, my three older children, right? My, my son and my two daughters. And Alexia has done a lot of the sex talk with my girls, but I've done a lot of the what men are like sex talks mm-hmm. with my girls, right? And, like just the nuance of like, you're going to meet a boy and you're going to think he's a nice boy. And then you're going to look at me and I'm going to be like, I don't trust the devil inside him. And you need to understand he's both of those boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not just the, he is the nice boy you think he is. And he is the boy with the devil inside him that I think he is. He's both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you don't be naive because they're both there. And the question is, is there enough character in the, in the nice boy you think he is being formed that he can deal with the drives inside him that will tempt him to to be selfish mm-hmm. um and like i found my daughters being like you know what i can see that like and that like when you lay it out like that i look and i watch young men behave and i can see the war between those two mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just how they behave and how they look at girls and how they talk to them and so i, I think that you've gotta there there are cer- there's certain conservative things there there are taboos and there are structures and there are innocences that need to be protected and there are consequences that need to be avoided and there are Mm-hmm. obediences to the Lord that need to be respected and blessings that flow from them and all of that that need to be constructed. And then at the same time, if you don't explain things to people, yeah, especially teenagers and younger people who want to know how the world works, they will turn to other sources for explanations. Mm-hmm. When they turn to those other sources for explanations, they tend to accept those other sources' conclusions right. because conclusions feel much more compelling when you're offered an explanation along with them. Right. Yeah, I remember reading a little bit by, um, I forget what his name is, but the guy who's the author of, um, it's a series of books where he's talking to your kids about sex and he has like books for different age groups. And in one of those books, he talks about how, right, you need to be, you need to establish a pattern from early on of you are the person who they can talk to about this thing. Otherwise, if you aren't the person they can talk to about that thing before they're having questions about that thing, they're going to find a different authority right. for that thing. Right. So, Which he, is catastrophic in a wor- world of Google. Right. And, and the right. interesting yeah. thing, at least in the group that I was with, is that that's what all of those girls wanted. Mm-hmm. They wanted yeah. to have somebody that they could talk to about it because they had questions and they knew on the in one sense, and I, I relate to this too when I was in high school, like I knew in one sense going to these non-Christians 
who are my classmates isn't going to give me the full truth of this, but it's going to give me something Mm -hmm. and I don't know where else to turn. And I think that, I think that's a common thing. At least it was in this group of teenagers to be so confident in their terrible advice. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, I remember Abby when she was 15 talking about this girl who she was peers with, who was having sex with some guy and like dating some guy and like feeling all mature and stuff because of the, the, daddy hole in her heart really was the reason and she was like acting really experienced and it made abby feel a little jealous like she was getting left behind until the girl got summarily dumped and abandoned and felt terrible and Mm -hmm. you know abby could have easily taken on the stuff that she was teaching when she was like on her high horse so to speak and Mm -hmm. then when she got devastated you know she you know what happened you don't you don't tell your friends that you're like okay listen all that crap i told you was awful right, right. it was terrible advice like that's not usually what happens you're mm-hmm. like what i told you is all true he's just a bad guy and he do- yeah. you know like and yeah i just it, it but, but i found that same thing in my group too the guys in my group were like oh yeah i would have loved for somebody to have talked to me yeah. i was hungry for it i wish somebody would do, would have done it yeah and they just didn't neither my parents nor my youth pastors mm-hmm. nor my pastor nor my anybody yeah mm-hmm. and every single one of them said that the result was disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. I asked the guys in my group if they had had any, any sort of permutation of that talk of like either, either a one-time talk or any ongoing teaching. And it was about half of them had at least something. But when we were looking at, at that half of them, it was like 80% of those guys. It was like just the very most brief. You probably want to have sex. Be careful, you know? So, Right. They were in the same place yeah. where they wanted more. Yeah, I mean, just my, I remember my the one my dad gave me was, um, do you know how it's done? Yeah. Do you have any questions? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was literally my sex life. <laughs> and it was it was probably it was probably less subst- the first sex talk I had with Jude. We were going fishing. And so it was like we're driving the truck with a boat, you know, it felt like a manly moment. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like an hour Got and 20 minutes. in the car, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I explained the female yeah. menstrual cycle, how that affects their mood. I mean, like we went through like mm-hmm. erections and like relation, I mean, just all developmental stuff and mm-hmm. I mean, just all kinds of things. And he'd ask questions. He was like, what about this? And he's like, because he's got sisters too. So this mm-hmm. was fascinating. She was like, yes. so that's why they're like that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was revelatory and, but it was really good. And he yeah. seemed clearly interested the whole time. And because we were shoulder to shoulder it didn't feel as embarrassing mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah, sitting there sure. looking him in the eye and oh, yeah. like, so jude do you know how to you know okay so that's bringing me to two questions then these are two other things we want to talk about on this but i, I can imagine if someone is listening and hearing like you're presenting a problem right now but you've just presented the problem like now what do i do if i want to do a better job at this so or what do i do if that's me like mm-hmm. this person you're describing is me how do i change my perspective my perception of sex, my understanding of sex. So those are the two things that we want to come to now. What yeah. do you do if you're that person who just either thinks like everything was permissible and how do I reshape that? Or now I just feel like it's going to be, if I get married someday, I'm going to only feel guilty. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And then how do we do a better job with our kids or mentoring young people? So I'm gonna let you pick where you want to go. Those Nick. Are like, like, that's a lot of different questions. <laughs> um, okay, so the first answer to all those questions is come to the Sexuality Everywhere Conference yeah. in October or uh, days nine and ten. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, and maybe I, even another one like get uh, get a 
be a part of a formational community yeah. <laughs> like even more broad than that right yeah I, yeah i would say go to church and try to find a church that's willing to speak frankly about things mm-hmm. and seek a mentor that is that is um, capable of speaking frankly about things with a temperament that you can receive it from I mean, there's, there's very simple answers like that. There's basic spiritual formational answers like that. Yep. Um, another would be like, you know, read the Bible, especially mm-hmm. the sections on sexuality and try to understand what's being argued for in those situations. And um, just some of the simple ones like reading about the goodness of sex in, in places like Song of Songs, the danger of adultery and ha- waywardness of eye in the first mm-hmm. three or four chapters of the book of Proverbs. Yeah, I, I actually have a question about that. So one of the guys in my group was talking about how for him, he was yeah. like the most legitimately helpful thing for me was the scare tactics. Yeah. Where he was like, I got terrified uh, so, I mean, right. Obviously this is an incomplete picture, but, um, yeah. he was like, I got terrified of what would happen. And so I didn't. And then I did see, as I was learning more later in like early college, right. it was very helpful to see all the ways that God had blessed me right through my terror. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, no, I definitely agree that the, the scare tactic is part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in all through scripture, God's kind of like, look, if you sin, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it right. is not good. And that's meant to terrify us. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So the scare, the scare tactic is scare tactics are good to the extent to which they're proportionally related to the truth and the real likely consequences. Right. So you don't want to, you don't want to lie to people about what, what could happen. Right. But you want to have sex, them, you'll die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> masturbation makes you blind. For right. Example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Things like was that. Someone told that 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 was a, oh, yeah, that was yeah. like a thing. Yeah, like in, it was. In I think culture, it, was, it kind of it mean? kind of then became a joke, but it was a like I forget. In the Roman Catholic Church, it was widely like disseminated that that, that masturbation could lead to blindness. Yeah, nice word choice. Disseminated. Continue, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, um, gosh, I did not yeah, know that. I didn't pick that up either. So um, yeah. Anyway, so there there are some things like that. Um, yeah. So I think that you you want to have the whole thing. So yeah, mm-hmm. I like. Like it's like it's like all of godliness. Like there's a certain amount of fear that comes from displeasing God. There's a certain amount of fear that comes from bearing the consequences of doing what's wrong mm-hmm. and it naturally producing bad things. There's also the creational reality of understanding how the world really works. So that's like a creational theology, or we sometimes we just call wisdom. Yep. There is a recognition that the the world is both good in its creation but under a curse. And so there are there are strangling vines growing up everywhere. And if you don't know where they are, they're going to they're gonna destroy your fruitfulness. It's the way things are. And that's mm-hmm. true in sexuality. So the first chapters of Proverbs, for example, you know, there are these dire warnings. My son, like, you need to understand how the adulterous woman works mm-hmm. and what she does and how she will devour your life and turn you into a loaf of bread that you're, you're worth nothing to her except what she could take out of you. Mm-hmm. And um, it's alluring at first. And oh, like her, she smells great, but it's, it's, she's full of her home is full of the bones of dead men there's a passage of like i don't know 10 verses or something in that that scott has memorized that sometimes he just says i'm like that is so terrifying like that is a terrifying what it will do to you but it's so true like i've walked through people who have fallen into adultery yeah and i've talked with adulterers and adulteresses and i've talked with people who were that woman Mm -hmm. and have come to repentance and the anguish of seeing the moral seriousness of what they've done and how horrifically terrible it is, right? Um, is 
incredibly debilitatingly shameful in, yeah. a, in a real and good way. Yeah. And and, so, and therefore, if you can come to the moral seriousness of that before you do it, right. it prevents all of that fallout. And so, right. you know, people talk about fear being a bad thing. And it's it's like people who say that shame is always a bad thing or that guilt is always a bad thing. It's it's so naive. You know, the, these all these emotions have the right places and proper proportions. Right. And fear is an extremely important human emotion. Right. And it needs to be it needs to be rooted in the right things and constructed in the same mm-hmm. way, in the right ways, so it circumscribes us in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at the same time, you need to know why you're afraid of that thing so that when that changes, your view, your fear changes. So for example, you know, I knew that sex was wrong before God before I got married because I was I would be taking and enjoying that which I had not taken responsibility for and I would be endangering the entering of a new life into the nurturing environment that new life should come into and I was like I knew these like fundamental mm-hmm. risks and the dishonoring towards God and that God had given me this gift he want that he had told me to use in a certain way I just had no right to use it in another way mm-hmm. right and that it was a romantic gift I believe to be able to give my virginity to uh, the woman I married who I didn't know who that would be until I married them and so mm-hmm. on right and and there were other things I didn't understand. I just understood a few of those things. Because I understood them that way, when I got married, I had no, I had no problem having sex. I was, mm-hmm. I was ready to go, you know, mm-hmm. because I, my fear of it and my drawing back from it was specifically related to the conditional right. nature right. of it being bad in certain contexts because of the its unloving nature yeah. in those contexts, yeah. and that it, and that the reverse was true in marriage. That in mm-hmm. marriage it is unloving. Mm-hmm not to give myself to my spouse in that way. Right. Yeah. And also to honor her way of giving herself to me in that way. So I think if you, if you build the fear in the theologically well, which would be the second step, obviously. Mm -hmm. So with fear, you add just knowledge and wisdom and a theological understanding of what, how things really do function, then your fears will function properly. Mm -hmm. If you just put a phobia in somebody, it doesn't really help. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have another question. I mean, related to another negative emotion in this way. So, I, um, so I struggled with, um, when in sixth grade, I was exposed to pornography and struggled with sexual addiction for a number of years after that. And when I was first starting to come out of that, um, a lot of the language that ends up happening around sexual addiction is, and I think some of it comes from a good place of people are trying to, to not just paint sex as a bad thing. But what tends to happen is there's this, there's oftentimes a conversation about, okay, you know, we should completely remove shame. Like Jesus has paid for it all. He still loves us. Like we are still in relationship with him. Our identity is still rooted in him. So there is no place for shame, period. And um, so I was trying to wrestle with that early on when I was trying to to come out of some of this stuff. And um, I was never really fully able to get away from it. And then I started to, when I started to learn more about the potential role that shame should have, I felt a little bit cheated towards like, okay, this could have been right. My, the shame that I was feeling before was in the wrong place. Like it was incredibly pervasive. It was more than it should have been. It was out of proportion, um, where it was turning towards, okay. Um, yeah, like ways that it was destroying me. But when I started to then try to get rid of it, that wasn't, that wasn't helpful either. What are some of the ways that we can nuance when we're talking about walking, especially through that area, because that is an area that a lot of guys are going to be dealing with. Yeah. with and can I to, say too, like Nicole the, and I were just talking about this that yeah. before the podcast. Yeah. One of the um, one of the, on the flip side, I have talked to many 
women who were dating guys. They were both Christians. They would sleep together. And then afterwards, she would feel this intense guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And the guy she was dating was like, no, no, Jesus died so that we wouldn't feel shame. Like, which makes me want to punch those guys. Yeah, my eyes just got really big. Yeah, you like can't I, see that on the podcast. Oh my goodness. I, like I hate that that's how they... Yeah, that is a secular ideology that has infected Christianity. Yeah. It is a misunderstanding of the atonement in the gospel. Yeah. Terribly. And, and mm-hmm. that's like this other way that they were being told, no, you don't need to have any shame at all, yeah. rather than rightly understanding they were feeling this... regret of something Mm -hmm. that they did because they knew this wasn't right yeah like i remember Mm -hmm. i was counseling a young guy in who in college had started sleeping with this woman and we when we talked i did walk him through like listen you are forgiven and you like you can be you can come back to jesus from this but there are things that you have lost that you need to like you need to see and those those need to affect your motivation for getting out of this. And I had several people come up to me afterwards. You are spitting in the face of your creator. Right, right. He gives you an amazing gift. Right. And says, it is circumscribed under these things. Right. Sex is part of everything else. It's not its own thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it belongs in a relationship that is everything else, which is marriage. Right. And how dare you use it outside of that? It is not for that. And it destroys so much when you misuse it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and then you just, I'll just do whatever I want. Right. Yeah. And then after, after I had that conversation with him, I had several people come up to me and be like, Hey man, you shouldn't be so hard on people. Like he's forgiven. Like it's okay. And I was like, what the heck? Like, how are we supposed to like, can we That's not have this, just the stones? That to is like, not of the scriptures. That is, right. that is from Freud and the new neurofundamentalism. Mm-hmm. that like, like the idea that, I mean like the Freudianism, it really is part of, popular Freudism that came into Gestalt theory in the sixties, which is kind of like, yeah, we all know all of that. Your shame, (laughs) like your sense of guilt and shame only comes from misplaced expectations that other people have put on you. Hmm. And you don't exist here on this earth to fulfill other people's expectations. So the way you should handle your guilt and shame is by releasing those expectations Mm -hmm. and allowing yourself to live free and as a fully conscious person as you are now, now like when Freud was thinking that through in the late, you know, like nine, 1880s, right there was a kind of like constrained neurosis creating Victorianism where people, you know, couldn't show their ankles. And it was in like, there were, it was creating these like profound anxiety driven neuroses in people where they couldn't function in their lives because of all these different layers of a like repressive and restrictive sense of taboo on everything, mm-hmm. you know? And so he was kind of like, look, you just need to, you just need to let some of this go. Right. Like, <laughs> which is so interesting. I think it might've been therapeutic at the time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because we've talked in other conversations, not related to sexuality, but about how we do live in a very repressed culture. Mm -hmm. An extremely repressed and legalistic and fundamentalist culture right now. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear that like that was the, that it could have been therapeutic at the time because maybe there are some things like, like related to what he was working through that still could be therapeutic Mm -hmm. now, but we can't embrace it in every area of our lives because in our our sexuality, we're not. We are not living in a repressed sexual time right, right. now. Right, and so Jill was talking recently with a, with a um, a counselor who was who Jill was saying basically our view. I'm pointing at myself and some of the people who work with me. You guys may share this view mm-hmm. too. That when it comes to victimization and trauma, we're basically all both victims and perpetrators. And because we've been victims, doesn't mean that when we harm others, we're not still perpetrators. And that 
the shame therefore is multivalent. Like it has different reasons and functions in different ways. And so there's some shame that we receive on ourselves that we need to reject. We do not deserve that shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we need to say, um, Jesus is preaching the truth to me. And the truth is I shouldn't feel this shame. Mm-hmm. Right now that's the, that's the shame we don't deserve. So yeah. for example, like if you're sexually assaulted and you like froze and you didn't, rebuff the person sufficiently and like later you feel like you're so weak and like how could I have been that way right and you feel shame because of that right I think that that's a shame you don't deserve mm-hmm. you shouldn't feel like you were attacked and the truth Jesus is speaking to you is in a curse soaked world these things have come upon you and people want to shift that blame to you because they don't want to take it for themselves and you can let it go you are not to blame mm-hmm. right that's different than when you're the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And what you the problem is, is that within secular psychology, what do you do with such shame, right? So if you did something terrible, and if you should be ashamed of it because what you did was shameful, mm-hmm. right? Then what happens? You just have that shame. Now, within a religious context, like in Christian faith in particular, the, 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 the way that's dealt with is through atonement. Mm-hmm. That a greater good that is God dies on your behalf to purchase forgiveness for you so that you can both be freed from that shame, but the moral seriousness of what you did is increased, not decreased. Mm-hmm. Cause if you did that thing, we just said it's forgiven. That's all. Then what will happen in the, in the natural function of human beings is, is that the moral seriousness, the shamefulness will get dissolved mm-hmm. and people won't look at that as, as shame, it should be shame. You should feel ashamed right. because you're guilty, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if and like every secular person I know wants to say that, like sexual assault is a blameworthy thing, mm-hmm. even if you are just a bundle of neurons just acting as they make you dance, right? And they can't let go of that. Well, what, well, what do you do, right? You have to do something with it. And atonement is the answer. And when you are functioning from a neurological fundamentalism that all people are are like balls of nerves doing stuff, then. Shame just keeps you from behaviorally um, working that, quote, person, that ball of neurons in a, a right behavioral direction. Mm-hmm. It's not a useful tool. But see, the problem here is is that shame is an extremely useful tool if you believe that a human being is a soulishly conscious creature who can understand moral guilt and can receive right. moral right. guilt and can be affected by shame as a being. It has a consciousness. So like, for example, for me, when I was some of the, some of the worst things that I perpetrated in my life, either against myself or other people, the shame that I felt that I believed I rightly deserved was integral in propelling me to change my life. Mm -hmm. But it, it propelled me to change my life into repentance, but also to a dealing with my brokenness Mm -hmm. and a forging of the strength of my character so that I emerged as a different kind of conscious being Mm -hmm. who is spiritually strong and more awake and more conscious and more morally formed and more spiritually deep. When we don't look at shame that way, what we end up doing is we're moving people in behavioral directions we think are positive, Mm -hmm. but in naturalistically functionally positive ways, but not deep ways. And it creates actually a bigotry of low expectations about what a human being can be and what a human being is Mm -hmm. that from a Christian perspective is profoundly blasphemous. Mm -hmm. And it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy that is extremely negative. And so because of that, on one level I can see, yeah, shame can cause people to quote spiral and have Mm -hmm. a, like a, a, um, a positive feedback spiral where it creates a, neg- a negating effect and they just feel worse and worse and worse and worse about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's some truth to that. 
But I'm not sure telling people not to feel ashamed is this is the therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that Christianly speaking, atonement is the therapy. Right. Yeah. The truth <clears throat> in in both places, in both of the types of shame that you feel, whether it's some like the wrong shame or the right shame, you have right. to have the truth speak mm-hmm. to you in that. Right. And in so order even, to come out of that feeling. So so if you were to talk to like if I was to talk to one of the guys that was sleeping with his girlfriend and she and she felt ashamed and he was like, Jesus died, so we would have to feel ashamed. Yeah. My response would be like, Did you hear your own sentence? <laughs> You just said Jesus died hmm. so that we wouldn't have to feel ashamed. Hmm. Like that doesn't do anything to you. Like it doesn't horrify you that the son of God died mm-hmm. so that you wouldn't have to feel ashamed because you're that awful. You are that horrifically awful, including what you just did with this woman that you hmm. did not deserve to take from her or to enjoy to yourself without the responsibilities bound up in it. Because of that, the son of God died. And if that doesn't create a moral, moral seriousness in you, then you are behaving like you are nothing but a bundle of neurons. Mm. And bundles of neurons can't be saved. Mm. Only conscious image bearers can be saved. Right? And so, I, yeah, I, I have a real problem yeah, I know. with that, that I know. anti-shame ideology. I think it's incredibly simplistic. I know that, I know that there is in some ways a good intention behind it because right. they feel, but that is, I, do, I do not believe that is a way to help people out of their insecurities. Mm. And part of and let me say one more thing about this. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on. I think it's really important. No, yeah, no, yeah. I think this when is very When you helpful. tell people they shouldn't feel ashamed, okay? If they're nothing but a bundle of neurons and you can manipulate that in such a way as to change their behavior, fantastic, right? But if they are a moral being that can't not know they deserve that shame, mm-hmm. you are, as a counselor, inviting the person you're counseling to become more repressed. Hmm. You're try- You're actually, yeah. you're saying, here's hmm. how you're going to get better. You deserve this shame, but I'm going to tell you you don't deserve it. You know you deserve it. Hmm. And you can't not know that you deserve it. Hmm. So you're going to try to tell yourself that you don't deserve it, but you know you deserve it in your core. And so what you got to do is you've got to repress it. You've got to pretend you don't know what you really know about Hmm. yourself Mm -hmm. so that you can feel better. And what that's going to produce is more unwanted behaviors, first Mm -hmm. of all, from a straight behaviorist perspective. But in addition, it's going to destroy their ability to really deal with their actual hurt, to face up to the moral seriousness of their life, to actually grow spiritually, to form their character and all those things. It's, it is literally fundamentally malpractice. Mm. Well, and I see, I, with these women in particular who I'm thinking of, like I also saw ways that it caused them to doubt who they were and question who they were and not trust their feelings in other instances because right. of because they didn't trust their like they oh I guess I'm wrong here hmm. and so it led to I, other decisions yeah. that they didn't make when they should have or yeah, yeah this is yeah, actually this, this is but it's critical for women because women tend to feel that shame more mm-hmm. intensely even highly even like atheistic like highly athletic high testosterone women who like are super feminists they still feel like ashamed and abandoned and in these sexual relationships and, mm-hmm. and even like when they have promiscuous sex, they feel bad about it and they're not allowed to tell anybody and they're supposed to not feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so what they start to engage in this repression of their emotions and it, I like there are certain behaviors that I think repeat themselves. I actually think that some women actually behave more promiscuously because they're suppressing their shame feelings yeah. for having sex that they've been told they're not supposed to feel ashamed for. And so then they're like, well, I can get over this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's partly what's behind some of the like group drinking some college age women do before they go out and hook up. Mm. They don't go drink at the party. They get wasted before they go out. Why? Right? Because they don't really want to know what they're doing. They don't really don't want to think about the moral implications of what this means. Mm. And they don't want to feel the guilt. Mm. But they're yeah. still gonna. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually, this is very, 
this feels like this is illuminating for me. Um, so one of the things I've talked about on the um, Becoming Unrepressed podcast was how I did this um, this program about a year and a half ago called quote unquote self-authoring, which was just basically like, look at your past, think about it, write it down, feel the feelings you need to process through it. And um, so for me, right, much of my story with regards to, and this is a theme that came up too. And when both Nick and I were talking to the different guys we were talking to was much of the things that that guys learned about positive, like what is right about sex, what is right about sexuality came from the process of going through healing from sexual addiction Mm -hmm. in some form, whether that would be by themselves or with other people or whatever. The guys who understood their sexuality the best in my group, at least were Mm -hmm. all people who were in the sexual, were in forgiven and free in the sexual addiction recovery. Right. Right. And what I found for myself was when I was going through that self-authoring program, I was, I was working through some of the stuff that was related to past sexual addiction. And it felt like after I went through that was like the final step of be like behavior had stopped by that point. But that felt like the final step of like becoming free from it. And I felt a lot of shame about a lot of the things that I was journaling through. And that Mm -hmm. was because right for most of the coming out of that stuff Mm -hmm. i was in the ideology of just i'm going to reject the shame i'm going to reject the shame i'm going to reject the shame and that was that was like the biggest integrating thing was feeling that shame and and you seeing that jesus you simply can't integrate with your moral self without feeling the shame Mm -hmm. and so i i just think it's i mean i just i want to like i want to cuss i want to (laughs) like i find the strongest possible language i can think of just say how horrific an idea i think it is to negate the ideas of guilt and shame in Mm -hmm. human consciousness i mean if it in fact the world is under the curse and if in fact we are sinners right we suffer from depravity then we are simultaneously victims and perpetrators that's that that is inescapable and Mm -hmm. if that's inescapable you have to feel the shame of your perpetration before God can make you into an honorable creature through sanctification and forgive you and for you to feel and be changed. Because remember, the forgiveness of Jesus isn't just supposed to forgive you. It is supposed to transform you. Mm-hmm. And the way it transforms you is not just, well, I wasn't loved before and now I'm I'm loved. Mm-hmm. That Yes, that's true that in your unlovely, but see, part of the glory of it is not you weren't loved and now you're loved. It's that in your unloveliness, right. mm-hmm. rooted in your guilt and shame while you were the enemy of God, Hmm. Jesus loved you and died for you in the midst of all the shame that you deserved. Hmm. Right. And it says like there, and there is scorn. Like it's, it's funny because like when Jesus dies and he's put on the cross, all this shame is heaped upon him hmm. and he accepts it as a sacrifice and yet rejects it as an emotional right. transference. Right. So in Hebrews, it says he scorned the shame of the cross, mm-hmm. right? Like he's like, it's not my shame. Mm-hmm. I don't right. care. And I'm going to take it because of what I'm going to accomplish. And in so doing, he dies for our shame so that we can be atoned for. And I, I think that like people who don't yeah. realize how the cross is supposed to make you morally serious. Yeah. Become antinomian. They become against the law. Like, well, Jesus died for we can do whatever we want. Right. And Jesus in like the Bible explicitly says in numerous situations, if you understand the gospel that way, you do not understand the gospel hmm. and you do not yet believe it. I think that it's helpful for you to even address that passage because I've, I've had questions about that in this conversation of mm-hmm. shame. Like, mm-hmm. how do we reckon with that? Right. Jesus, it says he scorned the shame. Like, right. but because he didn't deserve that shame. Right. Right. Yeah. So when, when shame is undeserved, then G- Christ speaks to you the truth yeah. of your innocence that someone is perpetrating something on you. And it's your job to say, I don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there is a kind of Christian squishiness where every, your, everything's wrong with you. 
There's nothing good about you. You're disgusting. You're, there's nothing but shame to feel about yourself. There is a version of the, hey, you need to let that shame go. Mm-hmm. And not through atonement. You just need to reject it. Mm-hmm. That is a very important point. What I'm talking about is the heresy of thinking that that is the point about shame. Yeah. That you can say that about all shame and right. all guilt. And that is absolutely false. Mm-hmm. The right. shame that is connected to your victimization, that is not connected to your perpetrations, is shame that you reject in the truth of Christ. Mm-hmm. But sometimes even in our victimizations, we are perpetrating things. And so it's, there's a mixture. Right. Mm-hmm. And, that, and in the areas where we're perpetrators, then that shame is deserved. And the answer is, is that the word of Christ is spoken to us in his death and resurrection for our atonement so that we can be freed from the guilt, sin, and condemnation. But we can also be made infinitely more morally serious by it mm-hmm. so that we're willing to take up the way of the cross and so attain the resurrection from the dead, to quote, Philippians 3, not to say, well, Jesus died for me, so what do I have to do? Mm-hmm. Well, what you have to do is follow him. You have to be like him. You have to take up your cross daily and march towards death to be like him in every way possible and to see that as the greatest pursuit of your life. Mm-hmm. Nobody does that goes like, hey, sweetie, let's just go have sex over day. Like, that's the kind of guy who goes, okay, wait, this relationship has to go somewhere. Where is it going? Mm-hmm. What does this woman really want from me? What does she desire in her heart of hearts? Well, not promiscuous sex most women. I mean, mm-hmm. even like atheist women who are not religious, they want to be adored. They want monogamy. They want you to love them for who they are. They don't want to be abandoned. They want any promise you can possibly make them in adjudication of your life so that they can feel like you're not going to abandon them. Mm -hmm. They want you to treat them with a certain amount of restraint so that they know you'll treat all other women with that kind of restraint when they give themselves entirely to you. They want to know that they're not going to be abandoned after they have children Mm -hmm. and engage in fertility with you and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because they're in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. And women want to know that you are going to respect and honor their vulnerability, not abuse it. Mm -hmm. And there's only a few ways to show that really. And that they will believe not just in their mental ideological self, but in their deepest primal self as a woman. And, um, there, and I think one of the reasons why we're so repressed now, secularly speaking is because secular ideology that women hold that is in like the new feminist wave is out of step with what women primally feel about themselves. Mm. And so they have to repress their primal self to believe in their, let's just have, do whatever you want, sex, whatever you want, ideology. They, on their deepest level, they don't believe that hmm. because they know they're vulnerable and they know they can be abandoned and they don't want that. Hmm. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm, I could I think, go on and on about this. Well, yeah. I think it's, it, I mean, I still think it's very relevant for this conversation because the question was, what do we do when we find that we've had a, an inaccurate understanding of sexuality, whether it's been promiscuous sex, embracing all of it, or complete repression of sexuality. And in some ways, we've got to have a right understanding of shame in both of those places, whether it's you've been taking on too much shame as it relates to sex or not enough, or like we have to have the truth speaking into that. That's part of the process. And you have, but see, in order to do that, see, one of the reasons why counseling struggles with this now is you have to have very clear moral like descriptions right mm-hmm. you, right because you have to be like this is wrong and this is right and it has to be doctrinally clear right. in ways that are very straightforward and if they're not then how do you know what's right. what mm-hmm. how do you identify that this shame should be embraced as deserved and that it should be motivating to you and that you should turn to atonement or whether or not it's right that's really critical in mm-hmm. modern counseling because of its relativism morally and spiritually has no foundation for that and so it can't do it the only way it could to do it if you had a counselor that was willing to work with you on it is for you to tell them what your moral your moral mm-hmm. status yeah. and then for them to then utilize that. that to work with you and some yeah. counselors will do that mm-hmm. but i man i found a, I find a lot yeah. of them that even when you say i'm a christian this is how i want to proceed 
they will go back to their secularistic training, which mm-hmm. is wrong, that says, well, what you really need to do, the proper therapy, the best quote, best practice therapy here is to do affirmation therapy in relationship mm-hmm. to shame. That's always the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just flat not mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. So we've got just a few more minutes. Um, I think one thing that... so. There, there's a lot more that we could say about how you walk out of these inaccurate understandings. So if, do you want to use the next five minutes to say a couple more things about that? Or do you want to give a little bit of some practical stuff on what do you do if you're raising kids or what if you do it? What do you do if you're terrified to raise kids to right. don't know how to talk to them about it or mentoring young people? Yeah. Okay. I think if you work it on yourself, mm-hmm. I think you're in luck. There's a lot of really great stuff published now. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of things. Um, yeah, I, I have found that the J Stringer stuff has been decently helpful for the people who have used it. Um, we have one guy who's going through the like fairly expensive version of it, and he said and he's worked on a lot of different things. He has some very intense sexual addiction issues, and he says that this has taken him farther than anything else he's ever worked on. So J Stringer's book Unwanted is just generally helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Forgiven and Free, like these like sexual addiction classes. Yep. Um, are getting better and better. I think yeah. we're getting, I think the evangelical Christian church in particular is getting past the whole, like just look away from pretty girls and mm-hmm. just don't masturbate and just don't, just don't look at porn. I think it's talking about, I, I think it's getting closer now to like when you're looking at porn, you're really not looking for porn. Mm-hmm. There, like there's there, like right. when, when you're doing these things, you're not, you don't really know what you're doing. That's right. why you, that's why they're unwanted sexual behavior. Like you do them. Right. You're like, I don't want to be doing this. And right. then you're like, yeah, Right. Right. Um, and so I think that they're advancing in ways that are helpful. I think that they are much less shame based mm-hmm. in the negative sense than they used to be. I think that they're retaining their moral seriousness, but they're also getting at deeper things and dealing with our real problems, which is kind of kind of how I think a lot of believers are moving now to say, instead of saying focusing on the behavior, trying to figure out what the behavior reveals. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And in that sense, you can then say, like, listen, Jesus died for your sins. Okay, he died for that. But, but listen, he, he also wants to free you mm-hmm. and he wants to redeem you and he doesn't want you to stay here. So let's look at this thing and try to figure out yeah. what's yeah. going on. Yeah, one thing that we did this past this past week in Forgiven and Free was looking at, was like taking a moment to almost like visualize our individual addiction struggles as um, like, what is this thing providing for me? So like, okay, is it providing me, is it providing me safety? Is it providing me a sense of escape? Is it providing me numbness? Is it providing me, um, feeling like wanted in some way and then chasing that down and going, okay, how is, how is Jesus supposed to be the answer to that particular desire that is coming out in this particular way? And until we can like spend enough time to not just go, I just hate this and it should go away mm-hmm. um, and actually chase, okay, where is it coming from until we can take that, the time to do that. It wasn't, it's not helpful because we yeah. can't figure out where to go. Yeah. And I think, I think even if you can take it back down to figure out where it's, where it really did come from, mm-hmm. I think there is some usefulness to trying to figure out in your development as a person, like, why do I feel, why right. do I behave this way? Why do I right. this way? And sometimes it, sometimes it is very psychotherapeutic, like daddy wounds and mommy wounds and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. bonding issues and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there is some real usefulness in all of that, as long as you don't use it to explain away theological categories right. instead of use it to enrich them. Right. I don't know of any strong and good psychological category that is not theologically enriching if you, if you really integrate them. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, but but I I always struggle with counselors trying to integrate Christian theology because they often know so little Christian theology, right? You know, and so I I think 
that's you always have to be really careful when a counselor is writing about Christianity. Often their theological integration is very, very poor. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they haven't been, they haven't really tested what they've been learning psychologically against the scriptures and trying to integrate them and see where they might be lacking and so on. Mm-hmm. So I thought so there's a lot of good publishing. Forgiveness Free is really good. I do think just mentoring is really good. Just finding yeah. a good mentor is very helpful. In terms of raising your kids, I think the the main thing we're finding out is just like, just for God's sakes, don't do nothing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, just I, get a list of passages in the Bible that talk about sexuality. Read them with your kids. You know, I had a, I, I think this was at last year's Sexuality Everywhere conference. There was a class on parenting. I think this is where I heard this, but someone was saying like, talk to your kids, not just about um, biology in age appropriate ways, but about sexuality and sex in the same way. So like when your kids are toddlers and they start to notice people who are pregnant, mm-hmm. you can talk to them about how those babies have come here in a way that's appropriate for your two or three year old, Mm -hmm. just beginning the conversation like that. And that I have a two year old now. And so that's helped me to think, Oh, I can start this even before it gets awkward Mm -hmm. and before he doesn't want to talk to us. I mean, you can start with just things like, like so-and-so and so-and-so came, came together. Right. And they conceived this child. And then later you can tell them what, what is involved in the coming together. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's important. You could just say they knew each other. They knew each other. In the biblical sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, see, it, it, it is a tension when you talk to kids because you, at one level, I do think that it is, a, is, it is more, you're morally obligated to respect the innocence of right. the listener. You don't want to sexualize young people. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's a really terrible thing in our culture. I think that young people are highly sexualized one of the things Alexa and I tried to do was to not sexualize our kids and to make sure they weren't sexually naive. That is yeah. not easy. No. <laughs> it is not easy because all the TV shows want to sexualize them. Yeah. And everything that surrounds them wants to sexualize them. And that yet we wanted them to, to not be sexualized, but also not be naive and to try to try to talk to them about sex in a way that respected their innocence, but also kept them wisdom wise a step ahead of everybody else and for me a lot of that involved talking about relationships and not about sex Mm -hmm. explicitly Lexi would talk to them about sex but I would talk to them specifically about like how boys behave and how do you know a good boy from a boy that's gonna mistreat you and how do you know this and like how does God want to form you to be the kind of woman that can have a good relationship and how like all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and as they and as uh, as Abby so Abby there was a time where she said dad I don't know any other girl who's who knows how to spot a deadbeat guy hmm. of all my girlfriends who all have professional dads. None, none of them. They, in fact, I've told them your like seven point list and <laughs> they're fascinated and like two of them want to hear it from you in person. Can they come over to the house? Yeah. And like, I, like on one level, that's not, that's not great. It's not that hard to do a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's not gonna be like a seven point list or whatever, but sure. <laughs> but I, but like at once Abby realized that I knew about life then asking me questions about relation, sexual relationships and stuff like that became reasonable because she knew that I was a, I was a place of wisdom. And I think establishing with your kids generally that you're a place of wisdom mm-hmm. is incredibly important. But what that means is you have to be one. Mm-hmm. Right. And that has to be hard fought in your spiritual life. Do you think that you'll do similar things with your son? focusing more on relationships first. Like I, I'm, I was just mm-hmm. thinking as you were talking, I wonder if that's a general thing you can do with all of your children or if that's a gender thing. Yeah, I mean, I will. I'll talk. It'll be different with you. Just people. Some people don't know that my son is physically disabled. So his his act, his getting the attention of girls and getting 
and accessing those kinds of relationships and what sex will be like for him is we don't even really know. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be a little more difficult for us. But I think the general, like, I mean, I, like I told him the dangers of his tablet and why I had gotten the router we got so that we could keep pornography at bay at the router rather than the device level Mm -hmm. that was for his good. And like, and how both masturbation and pornography like feel good, but they, then they, what, what you think will help you then controls you. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's, it's it's an enslavement, even though it's an enslavement through pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked about the dynamics of that. And so I, so it was part of the like trying to put the right fear into him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you explain to people, not just that God will dislike you or like that something terrible might happen, but to say all sin is a route to, to slavery. Mm-hmm. Let me try to explain to you how this sin leads to slavery. Yeah. And then when people realize this, the enslavement of it, they go, oh, God, I want to be enslaved. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps him. So, so yeah, I mean, some of the stuff is the same. Some of it's different with Jude. Yeah. And Jude, I give it to her, him in bigger doses, usually when we're fishing. Yeah. When we're doing something he likes, when we're feeling like he can listen to me while do something, doing something else so it doesn't feel as embarrassing for him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I give him the lowdown. Mm-hmm. He needs it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to send my kid out in the world without what he needs. Because yeah. mm-hmm. he'll, he'll get taken advantage. He'll be, well, I mean, this is, this is a classic. Um, There's a psychologist that we've listened to, it, but he'll, he'll be a classic Pinocchio. You don't want to send your child in the, in the world unaware of all the people who want to take advantage of him. Mm-hmm. Like it's true that the world has lots of good people in it, but any anybody who is naive who goes out into the world will be found by mm-hmm. the people who want to take advantage of him and they will. Mm-hmm. And I, my son is not going to be a Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. He's going to know how to navigate the world so that he doesn't have to doubt his own courage and competence. Yeah. And I want that to be rooted in Christ but I want him to see it as being in Christ and in him as his own man mm-hmm. so that he can see himself as a, a steward and not as somebody who who doesn't know who he is relative to himself in relationship to Jesus. I want him to know who Jude Gibson is, not just who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, yeah, I think the parenting thing is difficult, I, but I think that I, I also think that you have the right to just get in there because there, sex is everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can be like, listen, sweetie, I know this is going to be embarrassing for you in a way. Like, but listen, sex is everywhere. I can't not do this. And mm-hmm. you can't, you, you, know, you can apologize right. for it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Then you yep. got to get in there. And and that your goal as a parent is not to have a non awkward, uncomfortable friendship with your kid. Like that's not mm-hmm. your goal as a parent. Yeah. You're not trying to be their friend. You're trying to prepare them for the world that they need to be in. good member you have to serve their future self yeah Mm -hmm. always yeah thanks for listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.